You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. David, welcome back to the show. In our last episode, we discussed uh, valuations with publicly traded REITs versus private real estate, some exciting announcements from Armada ETF advisors. But as I sort of teased in our last episode, now we're going to move on to a sector update. Uh, as we begin Q2 2023, we're sitting here on April 4th. I don't know exactly when this episode will release. We just got in the Q1 data from S&P Global, uh, this report that you sent me, and I'll make sure to link to this report in the show notes. And a lot of interesting data, but David, what the headline to me here, before we even get into the sectors, is that REIT stocks overall underperformed the broader market. Yep, that's true. First of all, thanks for having me back again, Andy. Great to be here with you as always. We're here to talk about REITs and... Uh, why? Kind of why, are, why are they underperforming? I mean, I you know, you'd think in recessionary times, there'd be a, you know, to me, REITs are almost, I, I know they can be have a lot of volatility, but in a way they're more defensive, you know, focusing on dividends and like some of them are very transparent that they're responsibly using leverage. So like, what's the problem? What's What's weighing down REIT stocks right now? Well, I hate to point the fingers at anybody in particular, but I think we could thank our friends in Washington and Mr. Powell and the and the Federal Reserve. Uh, unfortunately, whenever anybody talks about REITs, the first they think about is interest rates. REITs are an interest rate play, and what we've seen over the is past that true though, David? I mean, is that do you think that's true? If that's what no, think? I don't okay. because when I from where I sit, I compare the REITs to the ten-year Treasury yield. Because that's usually the, the the proxy is what they say is REITs to the ten year treasury, and historically what had happened I'm, I'm pulling up my Bloomberg here so I can give you some good data. Historically, what had happened was that the average REIT dividend yield, like, was greater than the ten uh, year treasury yield, meaning average REIT dividend yield is five point two five percent. The 10-year tra- treasury is trading at three and a quarter. So you've got 200 basis points in your pocket to invest in REITs versus fixed income. Well, what happened during COVID was this, right? And so yields collapsed. The 10-year treasury collapsed. There was still that gap that was there. But then as the yield started climbing back up again in recovery, but the dividends hadn't caught up again, what happened was that the, the treasuries became more attractive than the REIT dividend yield. Where we sit right now on my screen, the two-year treasury is at 384. The 10-year is at 335, and the 30-year is at 360. So it's more it's more attractive to own debt coming due in two years than it is for the next 10 to 30 years, okay? And so investors are realizing who cares about dividend income when I can get 3%, 3 4% on two-year notes right now? And I think until the Fed starts adjusting the cycle of reducing interest rates, you know, that's when you'll see the REIT investors really come back in droves um, because, again, of that yield sensitivity. Yeah, We're focused on dividends, okay? Again, as but David, t- d- d- yeah. I got to pause you there with the treasuries, okay? And this is why I like REITs. They have a yield, but the yield can grow. You know, with treasuries, 
I hear these numbers that treasuries are paying. By the way, I've, I've been this way as long as I've been an investor. I'm 39, so this has been my entire invest, investment career. I cannot roll my eyes hard enough at taxable bond yields because it's been financial repression since I've been alive, you know, on an after-tax basis. Great. I get to buy this stupid bond and in real terms, pay you guys money for the privilege of owning this bond. I mean, and by the way, I own bonds. I own bond ETFs in my portfolio. But are we talking about are we talking about treasuries? We're talking about private REITs here. Sorry, I had to throw that to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just you know, I guess, I guess, I, I guess, I understand the appeal of bonds. Again, I own them, and and I understand the need for dry powder. But just fundamentally, you know, I I have a hard time. Like to me, whatever demand there is for REITs, it's at least organic. Institutional and individual investors buying it, whereas with treasuries, it's the government buying their own crap and manipulating the price and yield. Not only our government, it's other sovereign wealth (laughs) governments that are buying our bonds and stuff. Remember, this is like you know the be all end all. You know, I focus on the REIT fundamentals, the operations themselves. You know, again, so we're talking about you know for us, we have a residential REIT income fund. I'm focused on the apartment fundamentals. As we've talked about in other presentations before, we can't control stock prices. I have no control over my underlying constituent stock prices. We could focus on the fundamentals. Are the rents growing? Are the property numbers going up? Is the dividend going up? You know, fundamentals then appear to be fairly solid, even though the stock price doesn't reflect it. You mentioned we'd look at that the first quarter numbers, and we saw that industrial and self-storage have done so well. In a previous episode, we talked about the triangle and why industrial has been you know, such a, a powerhouse over the past couple of years. Well, what about self-storage? Why has self-storage done so well? Well, there's a couple of different answers that we can go into there. Number one, we're hoarding more than we ever have in the past. Pardon my language. We'll probably have to edit that. Um, we're hoarding more stuff than we ever have before. But also, there's this merger that's out there in self-storage land. Uh, one of the largest publicly traded REITs, um, Life Storage, is being acquired by uh, another publicly traded REIT called Extra Space, tickers EXR. Well, Life Storage, Extra Space, and the Big Daddy, Public Storage, and the space who submitted the first bid in this year for the stock, that's what caused that premium to run up for the self-storage REITs. Industrial of the sector always in demand. We're always ordering packages from Amazon and, you know, pick your favorite well, online I, retailer. Well, I got to pause. I got to pause you there on industrial. Yeah. Okay. So self-storage, I mean, to me, that's just a powerhouse of a sector. As you say, we're always buying more stuff and people are always getting divorced and they, you know, we're having life changes. So that, you know, that's, <laughs> that's a, that's, and it's, it's even that sector in particular, even in a recession, it seems to outperform, but I'm like, but it also performs well during expansion periods. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I'll give but, you a quick story, a real quick sidebar about self-storage. I was in New York a couple of weeks ago in, a, in an Uber. And at the stoplight, my Uber driver is on his phone and he's doing storage locker auctions. Remember the Storage Wars, the yeah. TV show? He's doing Storage Wars on his cell phone <laughs> as he's driving around the block. And I, and I didn't say anything. I mean, I was kind of fascinated by it. Yeah. And it gives you the full full locker. You see everything that's in there and he's sitting there bidding. It's like, oh, I love this. My buddies and I, we have the side business. We have this, we have this warehouse, this industrial warehouse space that we take all the stuff to. We process it. We turn around and flip it. We're making money doing this. Yeah. And 
this guy's doing this, this guy's doing this, he's, you know, he's driving Uber, he's doing self-storage, he's buying car, like, I mean, he was doing everything. And so there is always going to be demand for self-storage properties. What's cool about that sector, though, you know that there's more, that is not a sector that's predominantly owned by REITs, that there's more private players that own storage than in the REITs. We all see public storage everywhere, you know, they're in every town, but yet, the sector itself is dominated by the private players. There's more mom and pop storage units out there. Very there fragmented. Are, yeah. yeah. So again, this is a sector that's really, frankly, continues to be ripe for consolidation. Yeah. The only way that these big guys are able to grow like public storage is to go out and buy portfolios of mom and pop. Yeah, no, we see, well, we see, you know, you see like small uh, companies rolling up to become mid-sized. You see midsize rolling up to become large private players. And then ultimately the large private players, I think the plan is they can be acquired by these publicly traded REITs. So it kind of exactly. kind of makes sense. That's kind of a bottom up, you know, roll up type story, very recession resistant. But you mentioned also industrial and you know the triangle that you showed us in the last episode that we recorded. But I think it was just a headline I saw today, maybe it's it's April 4th, Amazon announcing more job cuts they've had some slowdowns in their volume and so from the article the this article from s p global that i'll link to in the show notes it says the dow jones uh u.s real estate industrial index followed next with an 8.9 percent return for the first quarter meaning q1 2023 so industrial has performed really well but then on the other hand you know a couple days after the quarter ends i'm hearing amazon letting some more people go so for me that's why is that performing so well if if at the sure. same time we're hearing you know amazon's letting people go this is this is a great i love this i mean again we could spend a whole half hour on this topic just by itself um okay so amazon if you look at what happened during covid amazon was taking down any and all space no questions asked you got space for you got space for rent i want it we're taking our hands off yeah. Well, now that we're coming on the other side of COVID, they're realizing, oh, I don't really need all that space. And, you know, Eagle River, Wisconsin is an example. Yeah. Um, so you're realizing that they're getting more, they're not just, you know, mass fire sailing their industrial profile. If anything, they're just pruning some of the stuff that they had overexpanded to. I see. However, so, I mean, it's to make an analogy to multifamily, it's like in, in 2020, 2021, by multifamily, anything you win. It's like, who cares? You just can't buy it fast enough, you know, good kind of a attitude. So that's kind of like what industrial was during COVID. It was like, Hey, we got to buy this stuff as fast as we can and ask questions later because we are way under-resourced when it, it comes was a to race to get as close to the consumer as they possibly could get towards that end consumer as quickly as they possibly could. Okay. But let's, let's, let's highlight them. we forget the triangle stuff that we talked about with Amazon earlier. You know, you're talking about, in that same story, they talk about companies like Torino Realty, East Group Properties, Prologis. You know, each of these guys have their own skill set. East Group, Sunbelt-focused industrial player. What's been a great market during the past couple of years through COVID and beyond? The Sunbelt. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. Prologis, the largest global industrial REIT that's out there, literally spans the globe. They know where the puck is going. They know what the world is like over in Asia and Mexico and here, you know, a local sharpshooter, wherever they're at. Now, a company that wasn't mentioned in the article, but that kind of plays into this is a company called Rexford, R-E-X-R. They're based out of Southern California. 
When you think of Port of Los Angeles and LA Industrial, it's Rexford. And the reason why I mentioned Rexford is if you go back several years ago, it's a perfect example. Torino is quoted in this article, and usually Torino is not a stock that would come out top of mind if we're listing off industrial REITs. Several years ago, if I had said name the industrial REITs, Rexford would not have been a name that would have come out very quickly because it was a smaller name. Now they're like the second largest name behind Prologis. Even though they're only focused on Southern California and the port of LA, they're literally the second largest global industrial REIT that's out there behind Prologis. So it shows you how things could dramatically change in some of these sectors just over the course of a couple of years. Totally. One thing that's interesting with REITs, though, is you know they're legally obliged to pay out 90% of their earnings in the dividend, right? And so I'm thinking of, you know, with all these sectors, even the the difference in performance or in, um, you know, valuations, to some extent, it makes sense. But I feel like there should be less divergence intrinsically because whether you're in a good sector or a dog sector, there's only so much capital that you can kind of reinvest for growth. Right. So like what are what are investors if investors are buying into REITs in some sector versus others with with much lower dividends or much more of a premium, like what are you really buying as an investor? Is it just the safety of that dividend or is it more just Oof. boy, you just give me like a white paper type of topic. That's a great question, Andy. Yeah. So uh, thank thanks for that curveball there. Um, yeah. you know, I, I that's a great question. When you're buying these companies, I think you're buying a couple of different things. You're buying the strength of the management team. You're buying true, tried and true bricks and mortar assets. You're buying an income stream. Is it uh, a Starbucks where it's you know in business 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day, whatever the number is, you've got that steady stream of customers? Is it a hotel and your customers a one-night stay? Is it an apartment where your contract's a one-year stay? You know, it's important to, again, know what's under the hood of the car. Like, you know how when a company, like they talk about a mutual funds holdings or an ETF's top holdings, you know, the top 10 represents X percentage of the portfolio. Or totally, whatever. yeah. It's the same thing for some of these properties. You're buying, because you're buying the leases, right? So when you're buying a multifamily reach, you're basically, you're buying up their revenue streams that they've contracted. And same with self-storage or hotels, Hotels might be a daily lead. They can reprice daily, and there's pros and cons to, to having. But if I own a 50-hotel portfolio and I buy one of these companies, really the bulk of my numbers, my revenue stream is going to come from, let's say, the top 20% of that, right? So yeah. you know, the best of the best where I'm getting you know $1,000 a night rev par, whatever it is, versus the bottom guy that's getting $150 a night in rev par, what flows to the bottom line? So you're buying a dividend income stream. It's a hokey saying, but it has some merit to it. What's the safest dividend? The one that just got raised. And so if you're able to buy a, a consistently growing dividend income stream of you know, bricks and mortar assets that you can look, see, feel, touch, smell, taste, drive by and everything, like that's what you're owning. But it's also you're owning a story. You're owning a management team. Like um, hey, I got a bridge in Manhattan that I want to sell you. But by the way, it's in a REIT. You know, if you bought it by share of this REIT, you could buy a stake in this bridge in Manhattan. But in all seriousness, if I could tell you that you can go out buy, again, 
our fund, and you can have a fractional ownership in literally hundreds of thousands of residential units from coast to coast in some of the most desirable markets, and it's only going to cost you $15 a share. Like, that's a pretty attractive value proposition. And by I, the know, way, it's probably a discounted to book value, right? I mean, do you calculate discounted to book value with underlying assets? And we our- do track the premiums to discount. And obviously, I, I we are trading at a discount to where we came to market, what we feel that our stock not is worth a bad right thing, now. David. That's not a bad thing. It's it's basically you know our last episode talking about you know investors like to buy things when they're on sale, and especially residential real estate very popular thing to buy when it's on sale let's tie it if there's some dry powder on the sidelines <laughs> looking to buy some attractively priced assets trading at discounts to nav my contact info will be provided on this podcast well just you. david yeah for our video <laughs> viewers they can just look at the the backdrop behind you the ticker is house h-a-u-s so okay so that's that's trading at a discount but it's it's an interesting conceptual question though because you know, you're buying the safety of the dividend. I get it, but with stocks, like with growth stocks or even dividend stocks, they are retaining more earnings <clears throat> on average, I would think, than an average REIT is, just because of the structural regulatory so, requirements on a REIT. Let's take a step back, real quick, though. Remember, yeah. a REIT is a tax structure. The tax structure simply states that a REIT has to pass through 90% or more of the net taxable income through sh- to shareholders in the form of the dividend. Now, that's where the question becomes up what you're talking about, reinvesting, pushing through to the bottom line. There's only so much that they can do themselves before pushing the send button out to their investors. But like, if you look at a company like Realty Income, let's say, that has grown their monthly dividend for literally several hundred months in a row. Mm-hmm. You know, they've obviously got that figured out. We're reinvesting proceeds into our company to fund our deal pipeline, whatever it is. But we're also keeping our investors happy because we're consistently growing this monthly dividend like we tell them we're going to. And so if you're able to kind of have the best of both worlds, have your cake and eat it too. We're able to fund our, you know, develop internally, grow our bond internally, plus make our, di- our investors happy by pushing out and growing dividends to them. I think it's the best of both worlds there. So, yeah, David, you know, in this conversation and in this last episode, we recorded a recurring theme from you has been professional management and i think it's really interesting because which is a shame because i'm so unprofessional but no no you're not no no (laughs) colorful colorful is the word i would use david but some of that in my opinion is imposed by the reach structure you know in that requirement of paying out income in the form of dividends and to me this is this actually only occurred to me fairly recently i should say one of the appeals of private equity to me and I, it, it, and I think this is maybe a little stranger or might surprise some people is I think in the public markets, we're starting to see more and more distorted incentives and disincentives. You know, I'm thinking of like, if you look at what happened at Twitter and, you know, how they were able to whatever jettison 80 to 90% of their staff. And you could say, well, maybe the company is bumping now or whatever, but there's no question that they had way too much payroll you know, in their company. And it's like, well, what was the board of directors doing before they accepted this offer to go private? Why didn't they care about maximizing? It appears to me that they just did not care really about aligning their company towards delivering a profit. So in the public markets, 
corporations, I'm talking about stocks, not not necessarily REITs, but just a lot of management of publicly traded corporations, they appear to care more about image or social plaudits or ESG or whatever. And I, I'm not even taking a stand on any of those, except I'm just saying we ought to know that a basic theory of capitalism is that they're supposed to be trying to maximize value for shareholders in an evidentiary basis. It doesn't seem like they're always doing that to me. But in the world of REITs, there's this structure that seems to uh, encourage management to just behave so much more disciplined than what I'd see in in other types of vehicles. But you have to remember that those REIT management teams own so much stock in their companies. They're so well entrenched with the shareholders. Bingo! No, and that's because it, David. That, because right REITs there. are a dividend play. Yeah. Remember, that's that's the key there. REIT dividend income. Times of volatility and safety go to the dividend-producing sectors, utilities, commodities, REITs. I have 10 million shares in compensation through my stock options package and everything. We just raised our dividend by 10%. Kick I just got an extra million-dollar bonus this quarter. I want to totally. make sure we do just as good because... I'm a shareholder, just like grandma and grandpa who live in the villages. They have just as much of a voice in this entity as I do. So I think that's the key is, is, is how entrenched these management teams are with their existing shareholder base. And do you think that that's a difference between REITs and other types of publicly traded corporations that there's more every sector, every sector on Wall Street? Absolutely. Interesting. So to me, that's my opinion. I could be completely wrong, but that's my opinion. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, well, just if you look at the board structures of some of these other types of public companies, they just you don't see a lot of skin in the game or you don't see enough skin in the game. OK, I think it's a reason why so many people try to get into the REIT C-suites, the, the REIT company, you know, management teams themselves because of that. Because of how the compensation works for a lot of these guys and the dividend structure, you know, you get you get that call up to the major leagues or the big leagues, and you've made it. Totally okay. So we we wanted to go through these sectors. We have about ten minutes or so left remaining. I want to hit some more. We've talked about industrial. We've talked about self storage. So back to this report. Um, office has just tanked. So I, I quote from the report: Office REIT stocks tanked during the first quarter with the Dow Jones U.S. Real Estate Office Index posting a negative return or a, a return of negative 14.7% for the quarter. Wow, down 14 points. They were already down. I mean, you know, the office is already kind of a considered a dog right now. How are they down another 14.7%, David? I mean, the headlines don't go away. We see how bad some of these New York office guys have been struggling over the past year or so, that the foot traffic, it's coming back a little bit, but you know, it's yeah. not there. I just did an interview earlier today. And so we have some publicly traded guys um, that talk about, you know, a couple of their properties. We're 100% leased at the newest property in Manhattan, and we're 75% pre-leased on this new property that's coming later this year. We're above expectations. That's great. What's the physical occupancy, the actual bodies inside the building on a Monday or a Friday when people are not in the office? And the answer is not a lot. And so um, whether we like to admit it or not, work from home has definitely impacted the office sector from near and far. Like it's not going away at all. Um, all these Wall Street companies can encourage and tech companies can encourage employees to come back. They're not coming back. 
work from home is going to be here to stay in some form or fashion. (laughs) And so I think that's leaning on the office sector as a whole. But in the same breath, you know, just a random question. What's more attractive right now? Would you rather own New York City office or suburban office in Denver, Colorado? I don't know what the right answer is, because if you got 10 of your family office guys around the table here to answer that question, I guarantee you would get 10 answers, 10 different answers. I don't want to own either. Though. I'd rather own suburban Dallas office if I have that opportunity. <laughs> the family guy, family office guys would all say we want multifamily. I think. But but you but you catch my drift. Like there yeah. is no there is no one size fits all answer that's out there. And so you know it's this urban versus suburban shift that we've seen. It's this migration pattern trend that we've seen of moving from New York to Austin, let's say. And eventually, they're going to go back to New York eventually. The numbers will come back up eventually. I was chatting with somebody earlier, and I'm like, look, if I'm one of these New York office guys and I'm sitting on a blank floor of, let's say, 25,000 square feet, and I'm waiting for a tenant to come in and fill 25,000 square feet, I'd rather suck up some pain and put in four walls to then have five spaces of 5,000 square feet apiece. And now I can bring in a tenant who may have never had that chance to come stay, you know, come work in midtown Manhattan, let's say. So I think you're noticing some of these office and industrial guys getting a little bit more creative on figuring out ways to get tenants that had originally been shut out to make it more attractive to them. And so one guy asked me earlier, what do you do if you're a New York office player? How do you get people back to the office? And I said, very simple, cut your asking rate, cut your numbers. Instead of quoting $25 a square foot, quote $15 a square foot. But then on the backside, you know, two, three years down the road, when things have improved, that $15 number now goes to $30 or whatever it is. And so now you're basically incentivizing your own revitalization. And you came along with us for a couple of years since you supported us. Well, guess what? Now we need you to help us out. A teaser rate. So, yeah. Yeah. And and I mean, you know, prices need to clear, right? So at some point, there's a price that makes it more attractive. You know, obviously your ETF is in residential. Uh, do, Do you have, I know you said if you get 10 family offices and ask them about office to get 10 different opinions. What's your opinion on office? Do you think, has it adjusted enough that now might be an attractive buying opportunity or do you think there's just more years of pain ahead? I think it's a little bit of both to be quite honest, because there are some really desirable office products, properties that are out there um, that, you know, people would kill to have the opportunity to go and work in. And in the same breath, there's suburban office that's just as desirable down the street. And there's people that are like, screw that, I never want to go. Who wants to go deal with traffic and any of this other stuff again? I'm happy doing it from home. And so I I think that some of it's been a little bit overdone. Some of it's not quite there yet. We're still need to see how it plays out. And then I think we're kind of in the sweet spot, like suburban office is an example. There's not many publicly traded players that focus on suburban office. Yeah. But like, you know, you talk about that stuff that's trading, bringing the discount, like look at how the Sunbelt guys have been doing versus Coastal. And yeah, you're seeing the New York stuff come back fractionally. But at the end of the day, you know, there's going to be this negative New York bias for the longest time. But as I mentioned before, if I came to you on September 14, 2001, with space available in Lower Manhattan, you would have laughed at me. And the same investor that took that bet came out smelling like roses five, 10 years later when things did rebound back to normal. 
And I yeah. think we're going to be in that exact same situation here. New York, Chicago, these markets, you know, go through these wavy cycles that what goes down must eventually come back up. Yeah, we're not, you know, work from home is a trend. And I do think there was a, a bit of a structural shift, but the shift wasn't that offices don't exist anymore. And I think another factor in office is the labor market because the labor market was so tight for the past couple of years. And so, you know, you're trying to attract talent. Sure, you know, we'll pay you this or that. Okay, but I have to work from home four days a week or five days a week. Sure, we'll do whatever we need to. We just, we, we need to make hires. Now, I think it's shifting a little bit where, you know, you might be a CEO and, and you might say, well, you know, we need, need to reduce the workforce by 5%. Well, guess what? Everybody's coming to the office tomorrow or you lose your job. We just lost 5% of our workforce. Problem solved. So I think, <laughs> you know, I think that that can turn on a dime too. And I think that'll affect the office space a little bit. You know, it's the fun thing is that it's just like, it's like Wall Street. Every single day, there's a new headline. There's not something new to fun to watch and a new story to follow. And so, you know, this office story is going to play out over the next couple of years and it's going to get beat up and people are going to make a lot of money on this. Again, those that are willing to take some risk to have a high risk profile, you know, they'll take a year or two of pain and then come back out and be like, that was the smartest decision I ever made was buying that office stock. Totally. Well, let's let's turn now to our perennial favorite on the show in the world of family offices, multifamily. Right. I, I mean, David, I love I love all of my children, but I love multifamily the most. Right. Um, but seriously, it's 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 just so much money and attention went into multifamily two years ago, even like, you know, very early parts of last year. And it's hard for me to even look at the sector and say, well, the pricing got out of hand, but then there was still this underlying structural supply demand mismatch where we're dramatically undersupplied with housing in the United States. So where, you know, number one, how has multifamily performed? Number two, where do you think it goes from here? I mean, I'm biased. So I'm going to say it's going to go up. Yeah, sure. If you couldn't guess that answer ahead of time, you know, it has the performance has not been that great for the apartments. Again, we think the residential is the only sector to really be in right now across all the sectors that are out there because residential tried and true. We all need a roof over our head. Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, you know, again, location, location, location. There's a reason why Sunbelt multifamily continues to do as well as it does, why the rent numbers are being pushed the way that it is. I think that, you know, you talk about the mark, the job market that's out there. The employment levels are very strong. We're talking about a three handle on our unemployment levels. So, you know, properties are occupied. What's cool for me looking at the multifamily space, again, we're focused on 25 publicly traded guys in house. And so for us, the rent is getting paid every single month. Average multifamily occupancy for the public guys is like, I think 94, 95% across the board, give or take, you know, a half a percent here and there. But that means that there's only literally a handful of units that come up for rent every single month. We're not talking about a property that's 80, 90% vacant. We're talking about a property that's, you know, 95% occupied. Yeah. And so, you know, Barry Sternlook, everybody know, I'm sure everybody knows who Barry Sternlook is. Barry was on CNBC this morning talking about the state of the affairs. And he's like, guys, the apartments are full. 
the single family rental units are full. The renters are doing, you know, the rental landlords are doing great out there. And I said to my, you know, I was watching my wife is in the other room. I'm like, thank you, Barry. Like, you know, <laughs> love him or hate him. Barry is talking my book for me because it's true. The REIT guys are full. The numbers are going up for the properties that they do have available for rent. The dividend is going up. But yet, because investors see, oh, interest rate sensitivity. Oh, my gosh. The renter doesn't care where interest rates are. If the renter is going to buy a house, yes, they care where interest rates are. But the typical renter that just signed a lease for the rent for the next coming year doesn't care where the tra- where the federal yeah, and, and David, if is. they're if they're not buying a house, they're going to be renting, right? So either way, you need the roof over your head. And I I think I sh- I share your long term bullishness until that supply demand just that underlying fundamental macro big picture aspect of an undersupply of housing until that's resolved this is a long-term bull sector right until the housing prices are basically cut in half and until interest rate levels are truly cut in half or more that affordability uh angle is still out the window we're Mm -hmm. still talking about a long runway of unaffordability totally totally well I think that's a good place to leave it. And and David's ETF or Armada ETF Advisors ETF is House HAUS, very unique ETF, the residential REIT income ETF. I encourage everybody to look up that ETF. It's a it's a, honestly a very efficient way to own multifamily. There's lots of good ways to own multifamily, but I think house is unique and it's also easy. Uh, I know at a recent webinar that David was doing with Wealth Channel. My brother texted me. He's like, "Oh, I just bought some shares of House." I'm like, "Yeah, that a boy." But because the point is, he's watching the webinar. It's just easy, David. It's just like get out my phone, boom. Now I own some apartment buildings, you know. So it's really, I think, a unique way to invest in multifamily. And again, we'll link that in our show notes. And David, can't thank you enough for joining the show today, sharing all your insights. Andy, keep up the great work. This was awesome, and I can't thank you enough. And can't wait to do it again. Great. Take care. Thanks, buddy. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.